The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I want to thank you guys and your families for being with us here this morning to celebrate these seniors. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. It was an honor to have Mark Bailey here last week. It really kind of took me back because in uh, January of 2001, I walked into on the Dallas Seminary campus and Dr. Bailey taught me my first class ever at DTS. It was kind of nostalgic uh, having him up here on the stage last week. Also made me feel really old at the same time as well. So um, turn to Mark chapter four and uh, we'll be looking at a parable here this morning. Now when Jesus told stories, uh, he did something we would never do today. Whenever we preach up here, most of the time, we usually make a point and then tell a story to illustrate the point. Jesus didn't do that. He would sometimes just tell a story, drop the mic, and like walk away from the crowd. And so in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the first parable recorded in the Gospel of Mark. But instead of unpacking the meaning for the people, he goes away from the crowd. And then the disciples start to gather around him and start, they begin asking questions. And so before we read the passage, we're going to skip to, uh, I want you to skip to the middle in verses uh, 10 through 12 in chapter 4. We're going to skip around some in, in this passage. So Mark 4, verses 10 through 12, where it says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So what is a parable? Well, these are stories that draw us into a bigger idea. Some say they are like modern-day political cartoons. So if you ever read the paper, you see, open up those kinds of pages, and you see a political cartoon. And these are often short, incisive and they make you think. And they start to divide people on like, well, if you're on this side of the fence, then you probably think this about the cartoon. If you're on this side, then you think this about the cartoon. And that's really kind of what a parable was. A short, incisive way, and it made you a way to make someone think. So a parable comes from the Greek word, parabole, which means to place alongside. And so it was to place a known truth alongside an unknown truth. So why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, first, it was to reveal truth more persuasively. I'm reminded of the Old Testament where the story of David, many of you know the story, when David sinned against Bathsheba, and remember, David sees Bathsheba, and even though she's married, he sends for her, she gets pregnant, and so David orchestrates this whole situation where um, he brings her husband uh, Uriah back and sends him off away, and, uh, and then he orchestrates things so that Uriah the Hittite is killed in battle, and then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And then God sends this prophet named Nathan to confront David. But what does Nathan do? He doesn't, he doesn't walk in and say, you know, I know what you did, and you need to repent. Instead, he tells a story. He tells David about this rich man and poor man somewhere off in the kingdom. And the rich man had many sheep and cattle, and the poor man only had this one little baby lamb. And there was this traveler that came to the rich man's house, and instead of preparing one of his own sheep to feed the guests, he goes and he steals the, the poor man's one little baby lamb, and he slaughters it and gives it to the guest. And at this point, David doesn't want to hear anymore. He is raging mad, and he erupts in anger, and he says, this man deserves to die. And then Nathan turns to David, and he says, you are the man 
It's the only time in history those words have been uttered, and it was not a compliment. You see, stories are meant to evoke an emotional response in people. And when David sees that he is the man in the story, he repents, and he writes Psalm 51. And so stories make us wrestle with truth in a deeper way. The second reason why Jesus told parables was to reveal truth to those who love it and want more of it. So again, Jesus doesn't just tell the story followed by an explanation, but he tells it, and then he walks away, and then he waits for a response. And then his disciples and others begin to gather around him, asking questions, and then Jesus says to them, he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying, well, for those that truly desire truth, for those that for which the the parable raised questions, and you want to know more, you can come find out more. And so for those who desire truth, they get the parable, but they also get the explanation. And then thirdly, Jesus told parables to hide truth from those who hate it and don't want it. Now again, we, we tell stories up here on a stage to illuminate truth, but sometimes Jesus told stories to hide truth from certain people. And the question is why? Why would he do that? Well, Jesus quotes here from Isaiah chapter 6 where God tells the prophet Isaiah to say this to Israel. He says to Isaiah, go say this to Israel. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, if you and I ever go share Christ with someone, we're not praying that prayer, are we? We're not saying, God, please make their, their eyes blind. Please make their hearts dull. Make their ears heavy. We're not, we're not praying that prayer. So why does God tell Isaiah to preach that message? And why does Jesus repeat it here in this parable? Well, you see, the outsiders here, these are persistent unbelievers, and so there were, on, on some occasions, Jesus would teach in parables so that his enemies would not understand and then make false, false accusations and cause further trouble for him and his followers. I think we see the same thing whenever Jesus would do certain miracles. He might heal a blind man and say, hey, don't go tell anybody, which I'm not sure, how do you hide that, right? But he would say, he would do a miracle and then, and then say, don't go share this because it wasn't Yet the time, and I think a similar thing is happening here. If they knew what he really said, it might result in more sin for them and not accepting the truth. I. Howard Marshall says it this way. By this method of teaching in parables, Jesus not only invited his audiences to penetrate below the surface and find the real meaning. At the same time, he allowed them the opportunity, which many of them took, of turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the real point at issue. So remember, when Jesus ministered, there were some that wanted to hear, and they wanted to hear more understanding, while many just followed him for the show. There were many that followed him that just wanted to see the tricks. They just wanted to see the miracles. And that was part of the crowd. And if you look at the Gospels, his miracles and his teaching had this sifting quality. Even doing a miracle, which you would think nobody would want to argue with, the Pharisees always found a way. Well, you know, you did the miracle on the Sabbath. 
You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. Never mind the fact that it was a miracle, right? And so his miracles and his teaching always had this sifting quality and and would put people at polar opposites from one another. So look with me in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Now, we don't know where this, take pla- this takes place, but this is by the sea of, or when this takes place, but this is by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is gaining popularity, and sometimes the crowd will be so large that he would have to get into a small boat and, and push out from the shore and teach from there, which actually makes for good acoustics as well. And so he would teach from a place like that. And so this morning we walk through this parable. We're going to do this a little bit different than usual. We're going to look at the verse of the parable paired with the interpretation a little bit further down. So we'll skip around some. So we're looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 first, where it says, And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And then to verses 13 and 14 where it says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. So Jesus taught many parables. This is probably one of his most famous ones. And he tells the story of a farmer who goes out and scatters seed. Now, from our perspective, this farmer's action just seems kind of wasteful, doesn't it? He, he scatters seed where, there's, where he should know there's little chance that it's going to take root there. I've told you before that um, my grandfather, where I grew up in Virginia, he, my grandfather had a farm. And we lived just down the road from his farm. And so there was this big field that separated our house from his house. And every year he would do the exact same thing. At a certain time of the year, when that field had tons of weeds growing in it, he would then go plow the field and let it sit for a few days, let it dry out. Then he would take this big contraption called a disc. It had really big, heavy discs on it, rotating discs, and he would run it over the field, and it would smooth out the field so that he could begin to plant a few days later. And then once that dried out, he would then go get a, a corn planter or something like that, and he would, he would plant corn or whatever crop he was going to plant, and over a few weeks or months, it would, it would grow, grow, and grow. And this is how he would plant. He would plant in very specific places, very deliberately and very carefully, and he would never just go around throwing seed around on the, the hard ground or a path or rocky soil or the gravel driveway. And so here in the story, Jesus is the sower and the seed is the word of the kingdom, the coming reign of God in the person and work of Jesus. But what does this story tell us about God? I think it tells us, is it telling us that God is some careless farmer? I don't think it says that. But I think it tells us he is a God of generous grace, that he scatters his message everywhere, even in places in which, from our perspective, it has little chance of taking root. You know, sometimes people ask this question, what about those who never hear the gospel? Now, I don't know how God works out all the details of that, but whenever I open up the scriptures, I don't think we see a God who is stingy with his message. And I think it's ironic that that we're the ones asking that question. Here we are 8,000 miles from where all this began, and 2,000 years 
after Christ. And here we are saying, how is God going to get his message all over the earth? I mean, we're the far reaches of the earth. Now, of course, the mission for us is to, is to continue to live on mission and to take his gospel message throughout the world. But I think it's, we need to understand that we worship a God who is more generous than we deserve with his message. And so as we read through this parable, this parable is, the focus is on the reception of the word. Remember back in chapters two through three, we've already seen these like negative responses to Jesus. And I think this parable just depicts that. You already saw it in in chapters two and three. So we're going to look at the four different kinds of soil here. Look at verse four. The first kind of soil is this hardened path representing the, the closed person. Mark chapter four, verse four, where it says, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And then skip down to verse 15, where it says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, if you know my wife, you will know that she loves animals. Now, I do as well, but not as much as her. She beats me in that category. But we have two animals that are inside the house, a dog and a cat. But we have a lot of animals that are outside the house. Stray cats, squirrels, birds. And so every morning, before she even drinks her coffee, she will go get some bird seed, and she'll go out and she'll feed the birds. Now listen, I've told her, I've said, you know, we don't need to do all that. I mean, there's this, there's this verse over in Matthew chapter 7. You know where this is going. Where Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. And I say, you see, God feeds the birds. And she always looks at me and says, yes, and he's using me to do that. (laughs) But it's true. I don't know what kind of communication system these birds have figured out. It's a megaphone, a microphone, a smoke signal system. I don't know what it is. But it's amazing. The moment that seed hits the ground... There's like 25, 30 birds show up, and that seed is gone in minutes. It's gone. You see, our backyard is mostly dirt, and that's mostly my fault. But, um, but that seed is gone within minutes, and it's this hard, packed-down earth, and those birds just attack those seeds, and that's the picture that Jesus is describing here. This is someone who is closed like a hardened path. Over in Matthew 13, when the disciples ask why he's speaking in parables, over Matthew 13, Matthew gives greater treatment, a more lengthy treatment to the explanation as to why he speaks in parables. And Jesus says, for to the one who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even, when, even what he has will be taken away. So whenever you and I think of a, of a closed person, we usually picture the atheist or the skeptic, don't we? But in Jesus' day, the closed person would be many of the religious leaders that you, that you hear about in these stories. They, they've been given all this light. They, they've been given the, the covenant and the law and the prophets. They've been given all this light, but they still reject Jesus. And so Jesus says, what they've been given will be taken away. So we don't imagine the religious person being the closed person, but It is true that works-based religion hardens us to the real gospel. 
Somebody can be raised in a religious home, but not a gospel home. A religious home focuses on behavior, but a gospel home focuses on the heart. In a religious home, people want to hide their sin. In a gospel home, they confess their sin. You see, for this, for this kind of person, the, the seed is on them, but it's never in them. They might, they might attend church, they might do some good things, but the gospel never truly enters into them. I read this past week that Nancy Guthrie, she tells a story of a time when she was invited to Columbia, the country of Columbia, to speak. And she was going to speak to two different groups of people, one on the first day and one on the second day. And the first group was going to be a group of 250 prostitutes. And she was going to share her testimony with this group of women. And she describes the, the first audience being receptive to the message. But the next day, she was assigned to speak to heads of military and government and business leaders, and she saw a real contrast in these two groups of people and how they received the message. She writes, they, meaning the, the second group, they had little sense of their need for forgiveness and cleansing because they saw themselves as clean and good already. Whereas the prostitutes saw themselves as too dirty to be accepted by God, these people saw themselves as too clean to have any need for the cleansing that God provides. I think we see the same dynamic in the church sometimes, that people who do lots and lots of good things, but inwardly they become hardened to the gospel. And sometimes it's, it's I'd say all the time, it's the good works themselves that actually begin to harden them to the gospel, and they don't really truly receive the gospel in a real way. So we have the hardened path. Then we have the rocky path. And this is the shallow person. Look at Mark 4, verses 5 through 6, where it says, Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. And then skip down to verses 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, Immediately they receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So some seeds, they take root, and they grow quickly, but they never, they never go deep. You see, this seed is it's, it's on and it's in, but it's not down. And so when the sun hits it, the plant withers because... The roots aren't deep enough to sustain it. You know, I think Jesus has real people in mind as he tells this parable. So this is the crowd that are wowed by his miracles, maybe even his teaching, but the moment persecution begins, they start to fall away. And whenever I read this section, I can't help but, but picture just certain former students that I'm thinking about, that they come to mind, that I've seen many students attend events and claim Christ get baptized, serve with impact, or on mission trips, but then a short time later, their, their faith is totally shriveled. And it's usually because they haven't counted the costs of what it means to truly follow Jesus. They haven't, they haven't read the fine print of what it means to be a Christ follower. And you know, sometimes this person, they, they, they come to Christ with all this 
great passion and zeal like you see here in the passage. And what will often happen with a student that I might work with is they might come to know Christ in this dramatic way and then suddenly it's, hey, Dave, can I, can I have the microphone? Can you put me on the stage? Let me tell my story. And listen, I am all for people telling their stories of faith and conversion. But I always want to say to someone like that, a new convert, say, listen, let's slow down. Let's, let's grow some roots first. Let's make sure this thing stands the test of some time. Let's get some roots. You see, roots, roots aren't, they're not visible. They're not, they're not flashy. You never give somebody a bouquet of roots. <laughs> you would never do that. But they're not, you can't see them. But I think it's an important point here that gospel growth happens on the inside, beneath the surface. And so many of us want to just focus on the external, the, the show, the stage. And, and this process takes time. And it's a maturation process. It takes a lot of time. So we have the, the rocky soil. And then we have the, the soil that has thorns. This is the distracted person. Look at Mark 4, verse 7. It says, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And then skip down to verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So in the rocky soil... The roots get starved from beneath, but in this soil, the plant is choked out from above. So like the rocky soil, at first things are going well. The seed takes root, but then other things start growing up around it and start to choke it out. So since my grandfather had a farm and he had a field between our house and his house, my parents also had a little bit of land, which they chose to put a large garden on their property, which might sound fun for you city people. But as a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old, it was not fun because most Saturdays would be spent, hey, before you watch anything on TV, you've got to go out and you've got to weed the garden. Like, music would play in my head when I would hear that statement. I hated to weed the garden. And I would argue and put up a fuss about this and say, why? Well, I, I mean, they're just, can't the weeds and the plants just grow like one big happy family? They can, they can all grow together. It's fine. But what you don't know about gardening, of course, is that if you let the weeds grow around the plants that you're trying to get fruit from and vegetables from, that they're going to steal the nutrients from the good plants. They're going to steal what the good plants need. And this is why it's important to to take out the weeds. And so, for this person, the seed is on, it's in, and it's down, but it's never, it never comes up to bear fruit. So for this person, the truth takes hold, but growth is disrupted by distractions. And so look at the list here. It says, the cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things. These are not bad things. I mean, cares of the world could be just your family or your job. These are good things, gifts from God, 
But if they become ultimate, they can dominate us. And instead of faith being central, faith gets relegated to the margins. And it just becomes a thing among all the other things. And faith is like a hobby, like everything else. So we have the soil with thorns, the distracted person. Then we have the good soil. And this is the fruitful person. Look at Mark 4, verses 8 through 9, where it says, And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And skip to verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. So for this person, the seed is, is on, it's in, it's down, and it's also up. And this seed enters the whole person, leading not only to their fruitfulness and growth, but the growth of others, the growth of many others. And listen, we're not, we're not saved by works, but those who are saved are going to bear fruit. So I want you to see something really interesting in this story. When Jesus tells this parable, he is doing the very thing that the parable is about. He just, he scatters some seed, and then he just walks away, and he waits. And then the disciples come, and the people that want to know more truth, they come and they gather around him, and they want to know more. They want to know more what this means. And I think it's important for us to understand this. I think we, we must not be fatalistic about our own state or the state of other people and do the, the moral calculus of, well, what kind of person is that? Should I really waste this seed on that person? That's not the point of the story. I mean, you look at the, the, the sower. The sower seeds, throws seeds everywhere. We, we can't determine. You and I can't determine what someone else is, right? But we share his message with anyone and everyone. We can't be fatalistic about that. But I think we learned some important truths about the gospel from this parable. And the first is that gospel growth is organic, not mechanical. You see, not only in this parable, in the ones you're going to see to follow in the coming weeks, God's kingdom is like a seed. Now notice, he didn't, he didn't say it's like a, a rock or a sword, but he picks this little tiny organic thing, a seed. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. I think it's very interesting because you see religion, religion can produce some change, but it's external change. It's mechanical. It's, it's, it's man-centered change. But gospel change is inside out, not outside in. And it's a really important difference. And then secondly, we learn that gospel growth is released only if it goes in deep. You know, a seed's power can only be released if it goes in deep. If it stays external, it's totally useless. I think gospel growth is like that. It's a lifelong process of tilling up the soil and and working in the gospel. And listen, I'm not talking about a works-based salvation, but God has given us certain means of grace by his grace that we are to use as we grow. But of course, he causes the growth. 
Remember over in our First Corinthians series, we saw this, where Paul says, Apollos planted and I watered, but God is causing the growth. And so gospel growth is released only if it goes in deep. Also over in Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes this conflict with Peter. If you remember the story, Peter had been eating with Gentiles, and then these certain Jews show up, and um, they start to make Peter reject his freedom in Christ. And so he starts to eat only with those Jews and not with the Gentiles any longer. And Paul confronts him and the others. And what does Paul say? Paul says their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, for you and I, we can understand the gospel intellectually, but at some point, the gospel has to collide with real life. And that's how we grow. And throughout our entire life, the ground has to continue to get tilled up and things taken out of it as we recognize that we haven't really applied the gospel in a real life-changing way in certain areas of our lives. And then lastly, the gospel appears weak, but it is immensely powerful. So again, if, if the gospel is like a seed... You know, a seed looks weak. A seed looks insignificant. But think of the power that just one seed has. Think of the power in just one acorn. One acorn has the power to cover the whole earth in trees, but only if it's received by the ground. And so maybe to you the gospel message might not look like this real significant thing it might not, look, might not look all that appealing to you on the outside. But if truly received within, it has the power to change you. It has the power to change you in such a way that your life can also help change other people's lives as well. And this growth happens, and it's happened for thousands and thousands of years. And it can continue to happen because the gospel having this kind of power I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for being a God who changes us, being a God who offers us your gospel, your good news of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus offers us in his life, death, and resurrection. And God, it can seem so insignificant. It can seem weak to our human eyes, but God, it is such a powerful, transformational thing, Father. And we thank you for that. God, I pray that even as you sit here now, if there's anyone here that is just mulling these things over in their heart. I pray that you would bring your light to them and reveal yourself to them in a powerful way right now so they want to turn in repentance and surrender to you this morning, Father. That they would recognize just the immense power of your gospel and how you want to transform them and to use them in the body of Christ to help transform the lives of other people as well, Father. God, you invite them into that. And I pray that this morning they would turn to you in repentance and surrender today, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.